but what I when I first started writing it, I was really daunted by the by the nature of trying to write a story that had you know six or seven or eight different endings. I think what I came to realize was that instead of writing a single story with six or seven different endings, I was writing six or seven different stories. So the way to, to, to approach it, instead of trying to think about trying to write one long story and figure out how you're going to break off into different branches, is that you just write five or six or seven different short stories, all with the same characters, all with the same story, but each one goes in a different direction. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Jeffrey Smith again. Uh, we decided to do a writer's roundtable uh, sort of thing every so often. So what we decided we might do is select a topic and then kind of hash it out over the course of a podcast. And we thought, who better to do that with than our good buddy Jeff Smith, uh, also author of Masabi Pioneers and some new stuff which we're going to let him talk about. So I think we decided um, after much back and forth, we were going to talk about characters and characterization today. Yes, but... but before we jump into that, uh, we have some big breaking news, and I feel like I have to let Tony tell it. So tell him what's up, Tony. Oh, so He's jumping out of his seat right now. Very well. I'm very excited. Two, two things. Uh, before I go on, I'm going to go on. But before I finish going, I'm, once I'm done going on. We're going to blow dart you to stop you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff also has a forthcoming book that we're going to talk about before we start on characterization. We would also like, I guess, to let you know that we'll be on the local uh, NPR station 90.7 Rhythm and News, starting on January 7th at 1 p.m. What's going to be interesting about that show is it will be shorter. Also, we should probably make a note, this is a live podcast. So if you're listening to it and you hear some, uh, that is not a laugh track. We actually have people. We have a uh, studio audience. We have a studio audience. I guess it was about a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a conversation with the nice folks over at uh, Delmarva Public Radio. I got this message on my phone and it was uh, a tweet. They had tweeted about us and I was like, oh, and my jaw hit the floor and I immediately just took a screenshot of my phone and I sent it to Tony and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, Delmarva Public Radio knows about us. They know about our podcast and this happened and I was like, are we cool kids? And he was like, I guess so. That kind of kicked off a little bit of like some tweet love back and forth. Right. And then they kind of contacted us and said, hey, we've, um, we really, really like that guy, Jeff Smith. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't say that, but I appreciate it. That's really exciting. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so no, they definitely... Uh, <laughs> The thing for they want me on the show, not you guys. I mean, let's, let's be honest. This is I just mean, a, it's just a means to an end to get you on the radio. But but the thing is, for people like us, it really is something we're unreasonably proud about. You I should mean, be. It's, it's you should be the, very proud the, of it. I mean, it's, the public radio badge, and there's a, like an underclass of people who think that that's cool, and then everybody else is like, "Why do you? Why do you care? Like, why does it's because it's NPR? It, Come it, on. Really, yeah. I mean, it really it's, is. It's, it's funny. News. That's awesome. Um, so everybody goes home for for Thanksgiving and has their their Thanksgiving, and you could tell kind of where everybody stood based on how excited they were about my, my Delmarva Public Radio show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what was funny was so we go to meet with the uh, assistant station manager, I think, or the assistant the producer. Pro- he's the producer, right? Uh, Chris Rank. You were sitting there, and so. So we're kind of just talking and he says, okay, so I think your time slot is going to be Saturdays following This American Life. Whoa. Very exciting. Right. And That's... you could have knocked Tony off. Yeah. I think you still could. He's floating right now. He was. To... Like, yeah. see, see this blush that's happening? Well, the happening? blush is probably the beer. blushing. Well, you, didn't have, you <laughs> did not have beer that day. You were sort of blushing. So the thing is that I've always called myself the poor man's Ira Glass. 
because I don't have a great radio voice, and neither does Ira. I mean, he would, he would, he would, he would tell you that, right? We can't and, crap on Ira Glass. No, 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 no. He's going to be your lead in. Well, no, Come but on. This is the thing. Like, he's so good at what he does, it doesn't matter. To yes. He doesn't have like yeah. a Garrison Keeler voice. Yeah. He's not like he doesn't have a Jeffrey Smith. Jeff voice. has a great mm. right? radio voice. I have he has a voice, a but I'm not Ira Glass. Whiny voice like I do, so I always called myself the poor man's Ira Glass because I always thought it would be awesome to get on the radio. Except that I always felt like I had the kind of voice that no one could stand to listen to on the radio. Which is why we add a second and a third right. when we allow you on the radio. Exactly. <laughs> people with people with better voices and more interesting things to say, and I get tagged along. I have no problem with that. <laughs> but no, it was really cool. I mean, I, I think kind of going along with what Tony said was when we get the call that they would like to have our show, and we went and met with Chris and. As we walked out, you know, I think there was this kind of this like little nerd alert moment between Tony and I was like, well, this is kind of like validation of what we're doing, that this whole foray into saying, hey, we want to talk to local authors and writers and we want to talk to these people and get their stories and kind of put this thing forward to have Delmarva Public Radio to stand up and say, hey, we like it. We think it's cool. Just don't cuss and get it to 29 minutes (laughs) and And we're good. And that was, for me anyway, I felt like validation of this thing we were trying to do here. And and the idea that other people would like to listen to it because the invalidation part is this is the third podcast I do. I have one. We just recorded episode 118. I have another one. We just recorded episode 230. And you're listening to this now. I believe it's episode 32. Yes. So Stephanie's clearly the reason. <laughs> because I've been doing this for six years at this point, and no one cared until well, I added Stephanie. Yeah. Oh, no, I think, and I, I feel like that's a huge compliment, but I'm not sure it's entirely accurate because I really feel like this podcast is really a joint effort. I mean, the guests, well. I think, are really, I think more that's than what you it is, the guests It's the guests that mm-hmm. having important things to say, which is a great segue for you to tell us about your important thing to say. Oh, I have some, I have some news too. Yes, I I found out that uh, uh, last week that my next book uh, should be uh, ready to be published sometime in the next few weeks. But I'm actually allowed to talk about it. It is uh, uh, called Mona Lisa Missing, and it is for uh, sort of uh, younger audiences, middle grade fiction, uh, and it is uh, an uh, historically fictional account of the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in 1911. Now the the theft is what made it famous. Yes, if it weren't for the fact that a, a an Italian carpenter who worked for the Louvre stole the painting in 1911 and kept it in his apartment for two years, no one would even probably know that the Mona Lisa exists. It would still hang obscurely in in, a, in the Louvre amongst like, thousands of other paintings. Who's that plain lady? Meh. Let's go look yeah, at the Rembrandts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I want to ask a question that I hope our friendship can survive. Is this a choose your own adventure? Or did I make that up in my head? No, no. This is a choose your own adventure. Right. Story. I yes. love that. <laughs> I've been telling everybody, and everyone is so excited is, that there's still an, such a thing, it is, and that people are still writing them. Yes. And you didn't mention that, so I'm like, uh oh, have I been lying to everyone no. I know? Yeah. It is. It is indeed a choose your own adventure story. Yes. So, so, so there are multiple endings, and and very and and the reader then gets to choose. Which I used to read every page. Oh yeah, anyway. I love those. Oh, yes. I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Walk me through. I, I clearly have never written one. I devoured them as a kid. I mean, straight up devoured them. But as a writer, how do you? What kind of mind frame do you put yourself in to be able to to, to do that? It was a lot more challenging than I expected 
it to be. Really? Because in my head, that's impossible. I yeah. think you have to put up like strings. And- I, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, like and a serial I, and killer's I yeah. like, stock room. It, it was virtual because I have it on my computer. And so I had various little like fake post-it notes, you know, electronic post-it notes leading to different things. But what I, when I first started writing it, I was really daunted by the, by the nature of trying to write a story that had, you know, six or seven or eight different endings. I think what I came to realize was that instead of writing a single story with six or seven different endings, I was writing six or seven different stories. So the way to, to, to approach it, instead of trying to think about trying to write one long story and figure out how you're going to break off, break off into right. different branches, right. is that you just write five or six or seven different short stories, all with the same characters, all with the same story, but each one goes in a different direction. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That- and I, awesome. I, I had I had a few chapters in the beginning that were the same, and then at some point in the story, I just sort of branched off and decided to. This is the point at which I go different directions, and I just wrote different stories. That's how it came out. Awesome. And then put it together in a format that the publisher liked, sort of. And so the the title is Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa missing, missing, and the publisher is Zuzel Media. Zuzel Media, awesome. Mm-hmm. Was, we, we've we've spoken about this on the podcast before. I don't know if we've spoken about it with you, but the idea that. One of the things that's really tough about being a writer is that you don't get to choose the, the title of the book. It is. It is very hard. It's so yes. hard. It's very hard. Yes. They should tell you that early on. Like, <laughs> yes, if you write that great novel, they're going to name it something stupid. Yeah. Uh, I'm not calling your my, – my Delaware beer is probably the stupidest name. But we've been – we usually but that's what your make book fun is of how bad my – yes. how poorly my book is named. It's uh, – I, I think, you know, I've never been very good at, at titling stories, and I admitted that very early on with the publisher. And so they asked me for suggestions and I threw out 20 and I didn't know if any of them were very good and it turns out they didn't pick any of them so maybe they all sucked. <laughs> but I also recognize that titling a, a story, titling a book has more to do with marketing a story right, than it does with, to sure. do with the sort of a creative idea about a story and I'm, sure. my my father was in advertising for years, my brother sort of works in marketing I never have and I'm not very good at it so I'm perfectly happy with somebody else saying right. this is a better title if you actually want to sell it and I'm like oh that's cool, that's cool I'm good with that. Good. But you're well, What's, wasn't one of your titles The Lady Vanishes? Uh, the Lady is Missing? The, lady, the lady, missing? lady is Missing, maybe, I think was one of my titles, which also yeah. would have been good, but I think they wanted to, to sort of capture the... The, the fact the, that Mona Lisa... The fact that it's the yeah. Mona Lisa. <laughs> that the lady, is, yeah. the lady Missing is Mona Lisa, yeah. right? So it does have like a market. I mean, you pick up a book that says Mona Lisa is Missing. You're not really going to... Like, I wonder what this could be about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's really going to... Yeah. I mean, you're going to kind of sell it right up front. Absolutely. That. Okay. So yeah. we'll give them a pass on that. But I do I think, think so. The Lady is Missing is a more like... Lovely title. The Lady Vanishes is the name of a movie. Yeah, I thought of yeah, it. Yeah, I was too, like, I that's a Sherlock that Holmes mystery. I believe. I was like, I well, there's, there's one of the one of the lines that I that I discovered in my research was when when the acting director of the Louvre came went to the police and told them that the painting had been was missing. He actually said, "She is gone" in French, which I'm not going to try to butcher it by pronouncing it in French. But he went to the that would the, be like the super- director of the Sûreté and he said, "She is gone." And he was, "What are you talking about? I don't." <laughs> Walked into his office and said, "She is gone," and that was that like was who it. the lady that makes her coffee. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and so oh, now that we've got all the news out of the way, let's just ham-handedly move into the topic. Yeah, no, I was going to say when we're talking. So that is a historic fiction kind yes. of piece, then. Yeah. So, but when, but it is a good segue because right, we're going to exactly. talk about characters. One of the things that I I had to do was try to get into the mindset of a guy who was real and a character who was real, and I had to sort of develop his. In my own mind, I had to, I had to find uh, I had to find his voice, and for me, that's 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 the the thing that gets me going when I when I write about characters and when I find a character is to find their voice. I'm I'm 
I've always been pretty good at, at uh, impersonations since I was little. I used to do a W.C. Fields impersonation that when I was six, I thought my dad believed me full force, but it turns out that he didn't, and he was lying. Probably being kind. Oh, yeah, he was just being nice, which was cruel in, in hindsight. Also, not for nothing, but that Santa Claus thing. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. My daughter's six. She might be listening. Um, so the first thing I try to do is I actually try to try to find the way that my characters would speak in my head. And, and the first thing I try to do is try to write the way they would speak. Right. Um, now, when you say write the way they would speak, do you mean like Mark Twain with all yes, the uh, really? Yes, and I and I and I, I I phonetically try to sound out words, and it looks terrible on paper. And eventually, I try to translate it into an English that can be actually be read because I think dialect, unless you're Mark Twain, is yeah, a terrible no, idea a in t- writing. Oh, that's a tough, a tough sell. Yeah. Um, but but when I first write, I actually I totally do dialect because it helps me get in the mindset of my characters better. And uh, hmm. when I did Masabi Pioneers, my 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 main character Arthur Mackey, the dialogue that he spoke initially was totally like pidgin English. It was very finished. There was a lot of bad dialogue in it. It was just terribly written. But that was the point. I needed to do that in order to hear his voice while I was writing the story. Sure, and I think the reader who is going to understand this person is not a native English speaker. This is you know someone who's come over, I think that also kind of helps seal the flavor of that character as yes, well. I think so. And when I, and when I go in and do the editing then, and, and you also just want to say he said it with an accent because right. You want to, you want to bring out the fact that he's speaking with an yes. accent because, because yeah. that is like Huck Finn. More people would read Huck Finn. More people would not hate Huck Finn. <laughs> if there wasn't so much dialogue. Yeah. If Jim it. didn't, if, if, if Jim was treated a little bit better. Yes. But also if, uh, if if he was intelligible, I mean, I tried to read that in the fifth grade, and it was just it's tough, very difficult, really yeah. tough to pound your way through. Mm-hmm. And I find like the whole, uh, you know, maybe it's different for people who are uh, speaking maybe broken English. I find like I can be more forgiving of that than I can the the d- dropping of the G's and that sort of thing. You know, like the oh, sort like of a, that like southern, a, like a southern draw. Southern like yeah. immediately, I just think this character's an idiot. Yes. You know, so mm-hmm. it's harder for me, I think, to do dialect. But I know, like when I'm working. With my characters, I don't hear them necessarily the way you do, but I try to almost picture them. Um, in fact, I'm working on a fiction story now, and the character is very, very clear to me, but I have no idea what his voice sounds like. I have no idea what he would speak like, but I know I can see him. I can see him in situations. I can see him moving through. I know like deep down into the core of him who he is, but it's, when you just were talking about that, it just struck me that I have no idea that the character I'm working on is a guy named Eugene, and I have no idea what he sounds like when he talks. Hmm. Where's he from? Well, he's from a well, basically a fictional town that is based. But, but on, you know about the town, yeah, yeah. I know about the town. And you yeah, know sure. what region of where, the country? Where's the, sure, where's the town? Pokemon. You know, oh, you know what? Well, it's Berk-a-berk. fiction. Fiction. Fictional folk joke. Yeah, no, but yeah, so. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, yeah, no, I know that. But, I mean, I don't know. Does he have a loud voice? Is it soft? I would think based on – I'm thinking that he wouldn't. Well, but, but those, those, are the, those are the kind of – see, that's, that's not a characterization problem. I have, I have a problem locating a person. But once they're located, you know – Like where, where are they, they are on a map? You mean? Yeah. Oh, okay. where, where are they on a map? What do they do for a living? How much school did they do? How well did they do in school? What kind of classes were interesting to them? And that'll give you a sense, right? Um, my daughter actually, it was funny, she just finished reading Only the Dead Know Brooklyn. Are we familiar with that? No? It's, uh, it's not Carver. I'm, I don't recall who it is, but it's, 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 a, it's a short story, and it's a guy on a subway train in Brooklyn, and one guy's going 
almost certainly to kill himself. And he's and and the other guy's talking to him with this awful Brooklyn accent. So it's like Boyd and you know, and it's Tom got Wolf. the dialect in it. And you know the guy. Yeah. I think you probably could have done it without the dialect. I mean, Cheever maybe Tom oh, Wolf. Right. Tom Wolf, there you go. Yeah. Oh, did you just, I just look it up? I Googled it. it. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> you know, you could have let me look smart, Tony. I'm sorry. You could have let me look smart. I was just over here on my side, like, I'm just going to Google well, that. That's Tom Wolf now. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tony. So, that's Tom Wolf. So, anyway, so it, it's got the dialect, which you could use or not, but you know the guy by the fact that he doesn't understand. There's an educated man that gets on the train, probably going to kill himself, and um, he doesn't understand what this guy's problem is because they're at two different. There are two different uh, educational and socioeconomic and cultural levels. And that's how he ends up drawing these characters. And the one guy who doesn't even do much talking, you know, you're, you're hearing it from the perspective of this guy in his broken Brooklynese. And you get a perfect picture of the guy he's talking to who says very little. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That's, that's how you get the, – the, the character voice is how you get the other characters mm-hmm. outlined. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I wrote I wrote a short story once uh, that a very similar plot about two characters on a subway and one of them does all of the talking and describes the, the other, other one, one yeah. in, in a very similar way. But that can be that can, I mean that, those those kind of writing in that way can be can be fun to try to try to both create one voice and also through that voice create other voices right. or other characters in in that way. I mean that that can be fun and seeing the world through particular eyes. That's what I like about writing dialogue more than anything else is finding that voice and and, and finding the differences among among all the characters' voices. That's why I avoid dialogue. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say, like, so some of the work, when I'm talking about this fiction story that I'm working on, I am by trade a nonfiction or creative nonfiction person. So the stories that historically that I've worked on have been real people, real places, real events. And then I've had to kind of, because I'm not strictly nonfiction, with creative nonfiction, you can kind of take a little bit more creative license with it. You can get a little more prosy. You can kind of do a little different stuff. So kind of dropping myself into that character who was a real person who was had this real-life stuff and then trying to think like how – how I mean, you know, maybe what they did or where they lived or how they responded or, you know, the the story arc or what it is. But in trying to drop myself into this person's head, into a real person, and now I'm making them a character – Sometimes I find that like how how much is it you know when you're telling this story so there's there's me the author writing and there's me the writer writing the story and I'm writing this character who was a real person sometimes I wonder like it feels almost like this weird triangle of stuff it's like real person real me and then this character that I'm trying to create or maybe they're in the middle and then you almost wonder like how much of me is going into that instead of because I'm interpreting what their actions were. I'm interpreting yeah. what they said or how they handled a thing. So it, I don't know. Do, do you sense that sometimes? Like you're wondering how much of you are infusing into these, like with the guy yeah. that sold the Mona Lisa, like yeah. is there like some Jeff that seeps in? I feel like you can't help that. I, I can't help that at all. I think there's a little bit of me you in, have to, in, right? in every character that I write because that's what makes hopefully the characters that I write so real is that, right. is that, is that there's a little part of me in all of them because I think that's the way you make characters real. I mean, you write, it's, it's a cliche. You write about what you know and the thing that I know the best is myself. True. So there's always a little, uh, just, a, just, a, just a smidgen of me in all of the characters that I write about. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think there has to be. I, 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 I think it's the only way you can find authenticity. 
Yeah, I think sometimes I struggle with does that feel like um does that feel like a, an escape? No, not cheap. Um, it's, sometimes I wonder if it feels like cheating, you know, because I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't know what they would do, but I know what I would do. I don't know what they thought of this, but and I maybe, know what I would well, think of maybe this. Maybe for me it's different because I write, I write strict fiction. And so for me it's okay if I if – I, well, I have no idea what they would do, but I know what I would do. So maybe I could make this character do that in that situation. And for you writing creative nonfiction, it's, it's a little different because yeah. you don't necessarily have that creative – Ability to to let your characters do whatever you think they should do, as sure. opposed to letting the characters do what 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 they would do or what they did historically. Right. Well, I, I've been having a lot of success lately with inhabiting the the, the character, and this is going to get to what we were talking about before, which is the relationship between writing dialogue and and writing. Like my dialogue is embarrassingly bad, and I just <laughs> I save everyone the trouble, and I don't use very much of it. You know, two or three lines exchanged, but. Lots of great writers don't use a lot of dialogue, and when you know, maybe maybe I'll be a great writer, and I'll be one of them that doesn't use dialogue because I just it just for me dialogue feels inauthentic. Yeah. And, and and we were talking about this, I think, a couple episodes ago. I can't put the number, but we were talking about this with Brian Russo, no relation, and we were talking about how you feel inauthentic when you're trying to write a character that you don't have any investment mm-hmm. in. And that's mm-hmm. why dialogue is so hard for me because it always feels very false. But what, I, what I've been doing is I've been writing in the first person from the perspective of the character. And that way I can inhabit the character. I can say this is what I think as this character. And that feels real. That doesn't feel phony. Even though it might not be what I think, it's what the character thinks. Yeah. And Jeff was saying before we started recording that you're, you're working on a dialogue for a play i am I'm, I'm i'm working on sort of a play slash musical potentially and oh, I, I will see your musical i promise and i won't <laughs> i won't say anything bad about it even if i think it but you when you're writing a even i mean even just a play i mean it's all dialogue so you have to get into various heads and you have to just write strictly first person accounts but you have to do it right. six or seven different different first person accounts and whatever those people would say i think this this idea came to me when when i listened to michael o'leary's you guys right. interviewing Michael O'Leary, and he was talking about how he thought all writers should should take an acting class because right. it would help them develop characters and develop the 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 idea of how to of how to find a voice of a character. And when you when you set about to write a play, do you start with a? I must start with a plot. Like you know how it's going to end well, before because writing. I'm a prose writer first. The Got first to, thing, right? The first thing I did <laughs> was write it in. In I, I wrote a story. Right. Maybe that's how it's always done because whenever you go see a play they, or a musical, they always say book by. So, right. So yes. the first thing I did was I wrote a book. I mean, that was the, and so so all of the scenes, all the dialogue that I'm writing now are based on this sort of very prose version of it of it that I that I wrote first, so I could sort of get the story down. So writing for a play, so so it's all dialogue, right? So you get more like stage direction. Well, yeah. So bit. yeah, to develop a character, I think for a play would be more complex because you don't get to just have this exposition this expository moment with the audience where like listen jane is this that the other thing like you yeah. have to like tell the audience it has that to, it has through to come out through whatever they do on stage and, and you have to let the actors. dialogue yeah i mean a lot yeah. of it is you have to rely on what's going to come out eventually when it gets produced what the actors are going to bring to it not necessarily what's on paper but what the actors are going to present when they when they do it god it sounds impossible yeah we spoke with andrew about it that's terrifying i can barely get my characters to do what i want them to do when no one else has to read them it is i mean from a writing standpoint it's 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 a it's a bigger challenge than i ever considered before it's not my first play but when i first the first play that i ever wrote i was in college and it was terrible but i i wasn't 
as I hadn't written as much as I have now, and so it didn't strike me that this is something that I have to think about. Right, and it, it's like it's like youth, youthful. So yeah. I'm doing, I'm yeah. making stuff, and now you've got the you've got the wisdom. Like, yeah, I'm making stuff, but I also should make something that's not garbage. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. hard. Yes. It's harder. It's much different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, when it, we're talking about characters, and there was one conversation that I had. Um, not, not too long ago with uh, Ben Beck, um, who's been on the podcast and, and good writer. And he said that one day someone had, uh, had read his new novel ape and made a comment to him about one of the main characters. Like, well, is she gay? Is she married? Does she not like that mm-hmm. guy that yeah. was hitting on her? Mm-hmm. And he was like, I don't know. She never told me, you know? And so yeah. for him, yeah. he was very clear who this character was. And he was very clear that that just wasn't even, in like the frame in the frame of the of the story that he was writing, none of that made any, any right because he said for yeah, him wasn't like even wrong yeah. right he said this character to me was all business all the time. Whenever she spoke to him, and I, I know that sounds like weird, whatever, but like whenever he was working with that character, she was very clear to him. She was all about the science. She was all about the business. She was all about technicality. There was no warm fuzzy frills. She was just this like very business like character, and so. You know, he said to me, we were kind of talking about characters and that sort of thing. And he said, you know, this, she was just very clear to me. And I never had to guess who she was, what she was all about, what she was doing or whatever. And, you know, that was like, you know, that was just for, I mean, that was just what he, that was just his conception of that character, you know. So, I don't know. I I feel like, and I would never really felt that way until I started writing this piece of fiction um, that I'm working on now where I feel like I absolutely... Just you know, I can predict and know that character, but man, it's such an it's just a weird space to get in when something feels that real to you that is completely made up. Yeah, and I think that's one of the I don't know. Well, but I think what's made up is the instance, not the idea, right? That's why people still think that Joseph Campbell's a person, right? It's just these are there are certain things that you're trying to communicate, and this is my way of communicating this particular story so in ben beck's thing one of the things that we know about this character is that she is the very driven person and we we have access god help me to that archetype right oh who who's like we don't we don't think about her personal life because she doesn't have any like that's part of the character it's not that the character didn't tell him so much as the character told him very specifically my interest is in what I'm doing mm-hmm. right now as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Right. But with this reader, obviously, was it was w- interpreting significantly more, which is right. fine. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, a great, absolutely. It's yeah. a great thing about being a right. writer yeah, is, to, yeah. is to hear readers <laughs> take so much more out of your out of your stories and your characters than than necessarily you even think about when you put into them. I mean, I think that's that's a lot of fun as a writer. Anyway, um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about characters and dialogue if I didn't mention the the writer who taught me more about characters and dialogue than any other writer. And that was William Gaddis, who most people have never even heard of. Uh, I haven't who, heard of him. You have heard of him. I have not. No, please so tell even, me. Even Tony hasn't heard of William Gaddis. I have Google. Impressive. Hang on. I'm going to Google this. Who, who, who's only written five books and he spent 20 years between his first two books and he won the book national book award for his first two books of which. There That's were brutal. How did he come back? It's almost unfair. It is. It is. But his his books are prose, and the first book of his that I read was called J.R., and, and I highly recommend it because it, you will see so it – was, it was published in 1975, and you will see so many similarities to the world that we live in today that it's going to be scary. Right. Um, it is a prose novel written completely in dialogue, and I mean completely in dialogue. Jesus. Uh, 
even even and there there are chapter sort of at the beginning. That, that almost begin- sounds like an exercise that you get it in like took, writing it, class. It, it took right? me a year and a half to read the book, but when I when I I put it down and this sounds terrible, it does. It sounds it sounds awful. I read it for about six months. I got about three fourths of the way through it. I put it down. I picked it up about three months later, and I felt like I hadn't put it down. I mean, every single piece of that book was so vivid in my mind after three months that I wow. Uh, wow. But because I mean, in his his the way that he crafts dialogue and tells the entire story through dialogue, and this is not a short book. I'm going to warn you, it's a thousand pages long. It's not a short book. I'm still pounding my way through Infinite Jest. <laughs> so yeah, I'll put that. I, I got the first. I got through the first page of that one. <laughs> Um, but but the way that he that he crafts an entire story told completely through dialogue was just absolutely remarkable. Floored me from start to finish. I like, consumed every single one of his books. His first book was called Carpenter's Gothic. Uh, actually, that may be wrong. It was uh, something else because it was about forgery. Um, Carpenter's Gothic, I think, was his fourth or fifth book. But J.R. was the one that that really floored me. That 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 really took me. Uh, I highly recommend it. Wow, an entire yeah. book in dialogue. Yeah. My God, there it's it's almost like reading a movie script. It's like I'd re- have to like, say, yeah, it's like reading a movie because there are like a, the chapters are really long, but there are chapters in the beginning of the chapter. There's sort of this brief, this brief description, and it's almost like you're a camera sort of flying over. But there's right. no there's no perspective on it. There's no narrative voice per se. It's just sort of a description of we're going from this place and now we're flying over and we're going to go to this place and there are people here and now you're going to listen to them talk. And you don't even get to see like he said, she said. It's just Back and forth and you have to follow it. And you have to figure out who's speaking. And what is most remarkable about it and what struck me most and what I try to do in my writing is that he, he every single voice is very distinct. Every single person in his books have a very clear and distinct voice. And you can read each piece of dialogue, and if you if you read it carefully enough, you know exactly who is talking. You don't have to see a Johnny said this right. to know who's speaking, because you can just you can see it in the way that that person talks. That sounds impossible. Well, like I don't even want to have to like think about that. Like I my, that makes my brain just cramp really up just worth to think it. about it's it. Totally worth it. Wow. It's, I, I keep it on my writing shelf. It sits above my desk all the time because I go back to it so often. What's wow. fun about that is I. It just occurred to me that there might be normal people out there who don't read books and say, "Oh, this is how I could do that." Like, oh, look at like. I, I read books. When I'm reading a book, I have two things going on. Thing number one, I'm reading the book. Thing number two, I'm stealing little ideas. I'm like, well, that was an awesome turn of phrase. Oh, look at what he – look at how the this this was tied to something previous. And you, you're learning about writing while you're reading a book and you're saying how does this – how can this affect my writing? And so that's a, that's a, that's an excellent example of that. Well, I think it was Stephen King that said, "If you're not reading, then you have no business being a writer." And I'm pretty sure that's not exactly what he said, but that was basically the sentiment behind it. it was it's, I mean, I don't know the exact you quote, can quote but, him, like, but he'll tweet he'll tweet and correct you. Don't worry. <laughs> that would be if, if Stephen King <laughs> tweeted at me. Awesome. Yeah. Holy smokes! If Stephen King <laughs> tweeted at me, I would print that sucker out and put it on a wall, even if it was him correcting me. But I think there was something he said. Something you know, like you have. In order to write, you have to read. Yeah. Well, you're part because, of a larger conversation. Sure, yeah. I mean, you gotta yeah. like. No, you can't just like roll out on a tennis court with a golf, you know, thing. Yes, I mean, you gotta, you gotta have the tools. Don't you know ever I mean? take your your golf cart on the tennis court. You they get I mean? so like, irritated. They do. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but I think you gotta have the right tools for the trade. And if you're not reading, how do you know mm. how people are crafting? How do you know how people are using turn of phrase and and creating? Really memorable characters, right? And how do you know if you're being derivative? If, and that's that's the thing that happens to me. Like I'm like, oh, that's derivative. Like you, 
you have to be careful. You read, you read enough and you read widely enough and you, and you do get into this kind of Joseph Campbell world where like, Oh, I, I literally have no voice. Everything is really just a comment on something else. And, an unnecessary bad comment to boot. <laughs> or you read something and then you realize that you're just imitating the thing that you just read. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why yeah. I can't read Kurt Vonnegut when I'm writing at all. Oh, that's right. I remember. I remember and I can't that, read yeah. Kurt Vonnegut just because I fall into his, he's got a, he's got a cadence. Yeah, he does. And you, yeah. you fall into it. very beady and you can feel yeah, it. Yeah, you can. It, you has got a rhythm yeah. to it. You sort of dance to it. And even though the words aren't as good, the, 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 the cadence is there and you just, oh, so I, whenever I'm writing, I can't, I don't read any Kurt Vonnegut yeah. for that reason. Yeah, I don't read, I don't read William Gaddis while I'm actually writing for the same reason because I I I wind up writing nothing but dialogue. Yeah, you find out like you feel like a loser when you put he said. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, we're running up against the clock, so we're going to call it a day here. But before we go, we're going to talk about all of our fun things that we do, like limericks and haikus. I can tell you how great they are because I've received one and they're awesome. Yes. So actually, re- my house has received two, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. yes. <laughs> you guys get like the gold star for most haikus in the household. So we have the, Tony and I have this thing. If you send us a word, then we will send you a limerick and a haiku on a postcard, and we will put that in the Snail mail. Snail mail. Actually, like, real mail. We it's put amazing. a stamp on it and the whole nine yards. So you pick a word. Tony will make it a limerick. I'll make it a haiku. We put a stamp on it. We send it to you, and then you have old, old timey, old fashioned mail. Make Fine. sure you give them a word, though. Trust me on this yeah you otherwise need, you, you, need, you need to give a word because steph is not very good at picking no up she's words. not no. She's, she's good at so many other things she's good at enough other things that we can criticize i think, I think she we opens yeah. she opens the dullest book that was ever written <laughs> called delaware beer by this guy named tony russo and she's my daughter is loving that book right now she enjoys she enjoys that book she's and she's the word at random so interestingly enough uh jeff got Yeast, yeast, and Budweiser, and, his and, wife got, and Budweiser. Midla got Budweiser. Yeah, so, so basically, like they didn't send me a word, so I just took Tony's book, just flipped to a page, closed my eyes, and just stuck my finger on a word. And you, yours was yeast, and you got. Yeah, you if got you don't want a word from Tony's book, you need to pick a word. Yeah, yeah. Please, yeah. Please, please, please pick, pick a, a word. word. But you can the also... only interesting word in my book is terroir. That is a great word. Though. Yeah, it's it a good word. It's like the nice third one. word in the book, and that's it the last. It. I yeah. had to actually look it up. <laughs> it's been you? a long time since I've looked up a word when I read a book. <laughs> I feel really, really good about that. <laughs> you can just send an email to podcast at saltwatermedia.com. But uh, if you go to www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com, there's also a part there where it has like a contact us, and you can uh, just, if you don't even want to bother with an email, but you're on there. You're on your phone or you're on your iPad or you're on your computer. Just hit up so what's your story podcast.com. We even have merch. Merchandise. Whoa, we got merchandise for yeah. Sale. Holy cow. Yeah, we got these like super cool uh, hardback journals. So yeah, you can even buy it buy a journal. And uh, yeah, so we got all kinds of stuff. We're, we're building up, you know, I think the NPR, Delmarva Public Radio thing kind of like made our us feel like empire. we had to like up our game. So all awesome. right. Before we go over the 40 minute mark, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Jeff, thank you very much for being here yet again. We'll have you back again and again, no doubt. Thank you for having me, Stephanie and Tony. Thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Want to hear more? Visit www.saltwatermedia.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review there. Tell your story.